Last Sunday, I gave an introductory sermon on baptism and the Lord's Supper from Hebrews 8, 6 through 13. My aim in that sermon was to put in place the important biblical theme or category of covenant because the Lord's Supper and baptism, these two ordinances, are ordinances of the new covenant. So if we are to rightly understand their importance and significance, we, we need to see them through the lens of covenant because they are new covenant ordinances. This morning will be the first of three sermons that will have us looking more closely at God's purpose for and the importance of baptism in the new covenant. Uh, we're going to be turning to many passages this morning, the nature of a sermon series on baptism, uh, which is, is a biblical category and theme itself within the New Testament that ties back to the Old Testament. It means that we're going to have to move around a little bit, but, but we're going to start with the longest and the first passage that we will spend uh, a significant amount of time in, and that is Romans 6, 1 through 14. So if you would, please turn to Romans chapter 6, and we'll be in verses 1 through 14. And you can find this passage in the Pew Bible on page 942, so please do turn to it now. As you do that, I want to speak directly to those of you who are members of this church. So those of you who have gone through the membership process, gone through the class, and been brought into membership by the, the other members of the congregation, uh, I want to speak directly to you because uh, even though you may have been reminded of this uh, if you were here for the announcements, we're having our annual meeting next Sunday at 4 p.m. Now, we, we need you not only for quorum purposes so that we can vote on the proposed budget, but because we're going to be giving updates on various important things that are coming up in the life of the church, uh, explaining more of the vision that we have for how we're going to accomplish the mission of the church and sharing some other important matters related to the church. We, we, want you for, we want you here for this meeting, and so please do make it a priority. Another reason why we believe it's especially important to encourage you to attend this meeting is because there are at least two other events that I'm aware of that may be competing for some of your time. First, it's the Sunday before Reformation Day, which is for some reason celebrated in our culture by giving out candy to people who knock on, on doors or ring doorbells in costumes. I'm not sure what Luther and the Reformers would have thought about this, but I'm certain they would have not approved of, of the costumes that celebrate death. Uh, so that's one thing that might compete for your time on Sunday, next Sunday if you're a member. Uh, second, not only is it Reformation Pass Out Candy Day, uh, it also happens to be a Sunday in which the Green Bay Packers play a game at 3.30. Uh, and that means that the game's going to overlap with our annual meeting. Now I realize that one of or both of these things might be of some significance to you, but, but I do want to encourage you, if you're a member of this church, this is an important meeting, and it's, it's not just a meeting. I almost hesitate to call it a meeting, but that's what we call it because we'll be worshiping in song, we'll be bringing in new members who will share their testimonies, we'll be celebrating and thanking God for his provision together, uh, and so it, it should be of great importance to you to, to come to this meeting if you're a member. With all of that, we're going to read God's word, and I did forget to do this because we haven't in the past done it. It hasn't become part of my normal routine, but I'm excited to make it. So this service, I'll get this right. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And I will read Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. And now you can, you can be seated while I pray. O oh, great God in heaven, who is over all things, we recognize you as our God. We have come to worship you in spirit and in truth, to delight in the gospel together, to hear your word and respond rightly to it, to what it calls us to do, to, to what it calls us to believe. We want to believe. We want to hear your word and do what it tells us to do. We thank you for your word. You could have left us in the dark. You could have made things difficult. And yet you are a gracious and kind father who makes his desires clear to his people in his word. And so we, we praise you, Father, for your word this morning. We praise you for Romans 6, 1 through 14. Lord, we recognize that you are worthy of all worship, of all praise that we as your people have been saved by your grace through the finished work of your son to delight in you, to serve you, to bring you glory with our lives, to, to not waste our lives living for sin or the things of this world, but to spend our lives doing what you saved us to do, serving you and your people, worshiping you, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, treasuring Christ above all. And yet the reality is, as we reflect on our, our time this past week in between corporate worship services, that we have not done, we have not said, we have not thought what we ought to have thought or said or done. And we repent of our sin. We repent of, of things that we have said to others, things that we have, we have done towards others, things that we have thought towards others, because all sin is first and foremost against you, our holy and loving God who sent his Son and so we confess our sinfulness. And at the same time, we confess Christ, that he and he alone has paid the ransom for our sin. He has taken on the consequence of our sin at the cross, bearing the wrath that we deserved. And now, because our faith is in him, we have been forgiven. We have been declared righteous because of his righteousness, that, that we proclaim both our sin this morning and Christ's righteousness, and that our faith is in him. Father, we want to praise you together for your many good gifts. We especially acknowledge as a, as a local church the, the, the wonderful blessings of children, especially those children who in the past week have, have, have come into the, the life of this church. Children are a blessing that you give to, to us to, to remind us of so many things and also to make us holy. 
for they reveal to us our need for you, our, our ongoing need as parents to be sanctified, and they reveal wonderful truths about your, your fatherly care for, for us, your children, your patience and, and your love. And so we recognize these, these little ones, these, these children, as gifts from you to, to parents, to, get, to grandparents and aunts and uncles who will care for them and teach them your, your ways, your truth, your gospel. We want to pray for them that, that as they are raised in the Lord and they, they hear the truths of, of your word, that they would respond to the gospel in faith, that you would save these little ones and that you would save them early in their lives so that they would know you and, and walk with you from an early age, Father. Uh, we, we also pray for those who are suffering, who are going through trials and, and difficulties, whether that be physical or spiritual or emotional. We pray for those facing cancer and sicknesses, that that their bodies would be healed. And, and yet we know that you do not promise that we will not suffer in this life. And so we pray that, that whatever is, is taking place in their bodies, that they would remember the gospel and your love for them, that they would not doubt that you care for them and that you have a purpose for their suffering, whether it's to, to make them more like Christ or to, to give them a, an ability to, to share the gospel with doctors or nurses or family members. And I pray for, for those experiencing physical sufferings that they would take the opportunities that you give them to, to bring you glory, to speak of the goodness and the, the blessing of, of being your children. Father, we pray for those who are facing great temptations this morning, who are in a season of, of apathy or difficulty when it comes to walking with you. Lord, wake up hearts. Remind us of your promises and your goodness. Uh, show the believer again your glory and grace in Christ and, and, and bring them out of, out of whatever they're struggling with, whether it be despair or temptation or even, even falling into sin. Uh, and, and do this through the, the simple and beautiful work of your word going forth. And now, Father, we, we pray that you would overcome my deficiencies as a preacher and you would bless your people through the preaching of your word for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On October 21st, 2006, so that's 12 years ago to today, my wife Amy and I exchanged rings on our wedding day. Uh, this is our, our 12-year anniversary. I'm excited about it. I know that I married big time up uh, that I am the blessed one and that she's the one that God is using uh, uh, me to, to, to help sanctify, showing, uh, showing her uh, the, the patience of God through her being patient with me. And, and I'm so thankful for Amy. And, and as we think about symbolism and, and rings and, and wedding rings being one of them, uh, it, it's important to acknowledge that God does not command husbands and wives to exchange rings uh, in the, the wedding covenant. Uh, if Amy had not slid this ring onto my finger 12 years ago, we would still be married. If I happened to lose this ring, and I know some men, and I think some women as well, that have lost their wedding rings, well, that doesn't mean that they're not married anymore. However, this ring does serve as a sign, as a symbol, and it, it serves as a sign, a symbol of the marriage covenant that I'm in with my wife, Amy. Our rings remind us of the vows that we made to one another 12 years ago, that, that we would remain faithful to one another until death do us part. And as Christians, uh, our rings remind us of, of the biblical requirements that God gives to husbands and wives. I am to love my wife as Christ loves the church, and she is to submit to me as the church submits to Christ. And that's very difficult for two people who struggle with sin to do in the context of marriage, and yet that's what we're called to do. So, so wedding rings, though they are not the marriage, though we're not even commanded to exchange rings in marriage covenants, we, we, we've used them, and, and I think for good reason. They are 
important. They're really important in our culture because they are a sign that symbolizes the marriage covenant that we are in if we're married to our spouse. And, and so that's what we've done. And many of us have rings that we are reminded of these things by. Well, likewise, baptism is, is God's ordained sign of the new covenant, a sign that he uses to communicate important truths about the new covenant to us and to others. God's word teaches us that there are both vertical and horizontal significances to baptism. Vertical referring to our relationship with God. Baptism communicates significant things about our relationship with God. And, and horizontal significance to baptism as well. That, that there are things communicated in baptism that relate to our relationship with God's people, the church. In this morning's sermon, the, the focus will be on the vertical significance of baptism what our baptism communicates about our relationship with God, his relationship with us and our relationship as individual Christians with God. Next Sunday, the focus will be on the horizontal significance of baptism. And then in a third sermon, we will look at some of the, the what if and the what about questions that often come up when we're talking about baptism. Martin Luther said the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and truly the purest gospel Describing Romans, John Calvin said that if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. John Stott described Romans as the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. And if you've ever read through the book of Romans, not only have you maybe had to pull out a theological dictionary because there are so many wonderfully big theological words and concepts in it, you have seen that Paul in Romans masterfully lays out the message of the gospel, that we are born in sin. Romans 1 reveals and, and, and makes that clear. And, and we're not only born in sin, but because of being born in sin, we're born in slavery to sin. And, and, and Paul goes on to, to make it clear that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so it's been used throughout the, the history of the church to, to open up eyes, whether it's Augustine or Luther or, or many others of, of those who God has used in, in profound ways to, to strengthen the church, to, to show them the, the, the core truths of the gospel. And justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone. And so Romans has a special place for many in their testimony and their understanding of the gospel and their understanding of, of things like the doctrines of grace. Well, in Romans 6, at this point in the letter, Paul begins to respond to those who, in hearing the message of God's grace in Christ, will, will think that justification by grace alone will encourage people to sin. Because if people are justified by grace alone, which Paul makes clear not only through Romans 1 through 5, but, but throughout the, the rest of the letter, then, then the argument is that, that if people no longer have to, to, to do the works of the law to be justified by God, which they never did, that's a misunderstanding of, of the old covenant anyways. Well, if this is the case that we're justified by grace alone, the argument is that, that people will not be motivated to stop sinning. Instead, they'll just keep on sinning so that grace would abound. Because you're justified by grace, God will forgive your sins in Christ. And so why stop sinning is the argument. In Romans 6, Paul shows the error, the error of this thinking, this argument against justification by grace alone. And interestingly enough, one way he does this, and this is why we read Romans 6, is he points to baptism as a, as a means by showing the error in this type of thinking 
And so the first vertical significance to baptism is, is that baptism, and we'll see this more as we work through this passage, is a visual of the believer's union with Christ. In regard to baptism, this is Paul's point in Romans 6. Baptism depicts our union with Christ, that, that we who have trusted in Christ are united with Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. Look at verse 3. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. There's this symbolism here, even in, in the very beginning of, of Paul's argument between baptism and union with Christ. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Now, if you've, if you've been here for any amount of time, if you're a member of this church, if you've seen anybody baptized, I want you to have that picture of baptism as we work through the, the symbolism we, we, we put up a, a baptismal uh, and, and we fill it with water and the person stands in it and we ask them, are you trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? You're looking to him alone to, to, to be your justifier before God? And the person says yes. And then we, we, we bring them all the way under the water and we bring them all the way up. And, and Paul's bringing this, this picture into mind in this argument. Uh, he goes on in, in verse four, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Picture baptism. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It'll be easier to picture these things next week because Lord willing, we'll have some baptisms next week. Verse five, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We're, we're seeing this in baptism. Verse six, our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, that is Christ. So all of these phrases describe a Christian's union with Christ, a union that Paul says is symbolized in our baptism. Union with Christ is, is not only one of the key theological truths in this passage, that's what Paul's referring to over and over again, union with Christ, union with Christ, well, it's also one of the key theological truths in Christianity. It's at the very heart of the gospel. Every blessing we receive from God is because of and through our union with Christ. Why, why are you a new creation? Because you are in Christ. Why have you been forgiven of your sins? Because Christ was, was crucified on your behalf. He paid the, the price for your sins. The consequence was, was, was taken at the cross. And, and how does that connect to you? Because you're connected to Christ. Everything you have, Christian, comes to you and, and, and is, is given to you through your union with Christ. In his classic book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, John Murray writes, and I've shared this with you before, Nothing is more central or basic than union and communion with Christ, for it is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Union with Christ is at the heart of the gospel. The physical movements in baptism give us a picture of our being united to Christ's death, burial, and his resurrection. When we're put under the water, we we are given this visual that we have died and are buried with Christ. When we are brought up out of the water, well, we are, we're given this picture of our resurrection with Christ. In this way, baptism is a powerful, beautiful, physical, visible display of our union with Christ. The Christian is someone who has died with Christ, has been buried with Christ, and has been raised to new life in Christ. Now here's the reality. The Christian life is so much this, walking by faith, not by sight. We believe that 2,000 years ago, 
Our Savior walked on this earth, that the God-man, the, the Son of God, God the Son, took on flesh. He did, not, he did not give up his divinity, but he added to his divinity a humanity. He added not just for a time humanity to his divinity, but for all time. He has a body right now, the incarnation, this hypostatic union, this, this beautiful truth that, that Jesus took on human flesh. And then we also believe that he walked on this earth and he lived a sinless life. He faced every single temptation that is common to man and he overcame it. He did not give in. He lived a righteous, sinless life. We believe that by faith, not by sight. He is the true son of God. He is the true Israel. We believe these things. And, and not only that, we believe that he, he, after living this sinless life, though he did not have to, though no one overcame him, he willingly set his face to the cross and he went to the cross to bear the sins of his people. And after he died, he was placed in a tomb and he was raised three days later triumphantly with a resurrected body. We believe these things, not because we have seen them with our eyes, but we believe them because the Bible tells us so and we believe they're true. And then after that, he, he walked on this earth with his resurrected body and, and he did some more teaching with his disciples. And then he was raised, he ascended 40 days later to sit at the right hand of our Father in heaven. We believe these things all by faith, not by sight. And, and one day our faith will be sight. There will not be a disconnect between faith and sight. We will see Jesus face to face. All the glories will be revealed to us forever and ever and ever. It will get more amazing. We will see things more clearly forever and ever and ever and ever. And yet today we walk by faith, not by sight. And what does this have to do with baptism? Because in baptism, God gives us something to look at, church. It's really hard to understand the mystical union that is at the heart of the Christian life, this union with Christ. It's really hard because one of the reasons it's hard is because we don't feel this all the time. I don't always feel united to Christ, especially when I'm struggling with sin or temptation, when I'm, when I'm struggling with, with something that's going on in my life or in the life of somebody that I love. I might not feel union with Christ. And yet God has given us, in this case, a visible picture of that mystical union. And that is seen in baptism. And, and one of the things that I hope to, to reclaim for us as a church is, is all of the blessings that God has for his people in this ordinance of baptism. It's right there for us to look at and to see. Yes, you might not feel it, but when, when you think back to your baptism and when you watch somebody else get baptized, it's right there before you. Union with Christ. The one who is in Christ was, was, was buried in Christ. He, he died or she died in Christ and has been raised in Christ. We don't get a lot of pictures in the Christian life. We don't get a lot of these visible things. And, and sometimes we Protestants can, can shy away from them because we've seen them misused. And yet, Scripture's clear. Here's one for you, church. It's good. It's a blessing to strengthen and encourage your faith. Union with Christ is on full display in baptism. And in baptism, not only does, does God reveal our union with Christ, which happened by grace. We did not connect ourselves to Jesus. This was not an act of man. We didn't say, hey, you know what? Jesus is really cool. I want to be homies with Jesus. So I'm, you know what? Let's do the secret handshake. Let's connect Jesus. And now we're on, we're on a connected level. No, no, no. It's not how it happened. You were brought into connection with Jesus. You were brought into this union with Christ. He brought you into fellowship with himself. And the other side of this union with Christ that's pictured in baptism is in baptism, the one who's being baptized embraces their union with Christ. Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
That's powerful language. Yes, baptism does not save you. The thief on the cross trusted in Christ. And, and again, I referenced this in the, in the sermon last week. If he had the time, if he would have been taken off the cross and, and been part of the, the, the first century church, they would have baptized him and he would have celebrated the Lord's Supper. He didn't have the chance to do that. So he's the exception. So you don't get saved by being baptized in water, but it does give you this opportunity to put on Christ. Galatians 3.27 tells us, I want to do that. Uh, Christ brought me into this union and I want, I want this visible picture that I have put on Christ. And we get that, Paul says in Galatians 3.27, through baptism. In our baptism, we who are in Christ put on Christ. Baptism is how we identify ourselves with Christ. I've always been interested and, and loved considering Christ's own baptism. Remember, he was baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he didn't want to baptize Jesus. He recognized Jesus as, as, as greater than he was. And, and so he struggled with baptizing Jesus. But Jesus says, this is to fulfill all righteousness. This is an instruction from God. I am to be baptized. And, and the question is, why would Jesus need to be baptized by John the Baptist? Remember, John the Baptist's baptism a precursor to the new covenant baptism was a baptism for the remission of sins. It was, it, it was a, a repentance or a baptism of repentance. So people who were, who were fully aware that they were sinners were saying, John, baptize me because I want to, to show the world that I understand that I'm a sinner. So it wasn't, it wasn't the exact same type of baptism. And yet Jesus here, who's never sinned, says, John, you need to baptize me. And John's struggling with that. Why would he be baptized? Because in his baptism, Jesus was identifying with sinners. So the sinless one was saying, I identify with you sinners. And in our baptism, though we are sinful, we identify with Christ who is sinless. So there's this double identification. In Christ's baptism, he's identifying with us, sinful people. And in our, baptize, our baptism, we are identifying with Christ. Well, in Romans 6, 1 through 14, and it's, it's very interesting Paul uses baptism and it's symbolizing our union with Christ to call us to pursue godliness and to fight against sin. I don't know how many of you look at your baptism if you're baptized as a believer as a tool to fight against sin. But, but that's what Paul is, is, is doing here. He's saying that, remember, those baptized are united to Christ. And, and no, they would never sin. Why, well, they will sin, but they wouldn't want to sin. They wouldn't give in to sin willingly because they've been united to Christ. So the argument goes on, because Christ died to sin and lives to God and we are united with Christ as shown in our baptism, we Christians are also dead to sin but alive to God. So we must not let sin reign in us. Now Paul exhorts us not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies but to rebel against sin because we are free from sin. Now if here being dead to sin means that we can no longer sin, then, then Paul wouldn't have to call us not to sin. So some say, at some point in the Christian life, you can, you can get to a place where you no, you, no, you no longer sin. Well, if that's what it means in this passage, then it makes no sense for Jesus to die to sin because he never sinned. So we can't interpret that here in this passage. Being dead to sin means something else. It means not giving in to sin, not willingly going into sin or pursuing sin. Paul wouldn't call us to fight against sin if we don't have to fight against sin. But because sin remains in us, even after we are justified by God's grace, we need to fight it. We need to, to pick up our sword, the word of God, and fight against sin. Pursue holiness, not give in to temptation. And we're going to. We're, gonna, we're going to sin still. But Paul says, don't do it. Don't give in to it. And we can fight sin. Why? Because we're united to Christ's death, which frees us from slavery to sin, 
And we're united to Christ's resurrection, which gives us the power to say no to sin and yes to God. Before we were united to Christ, our body was an instrument of wickedness, a tool for evil, a weapon of darkness. And some of us know that better than others because we did disgusting, wicked, gross things. And it was terrible, and we, 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 we regret it. There is regret in the Christian life. I hate that I did those things with my body. It's disgusting, it's gross. And yet now in Christ, we can and we must offer ourselves wholly to God as an instrument, as a tool, as a weapon of righteousness. And the only basis on which Paul can give these commands and the only grounds on which we can obey these commands is that we Christians have been through our union with Christ brought from death to life. A real death has occurred spiritually. The old man or the old woman has died in Christ and been raised now in Christ. It makes no sense to let sin reign in us or to offer ourselves to it then because we're new creations. We have been raised in Christ. Since we're alive to God, we can willingly offer ourselves to God. Christ died and Christ rose and we have died and been risen with Christ. And all of this is what? Demonstrated in baptism. We're no longer under the law and its curse. We who are in Christ are under grace, dependent on the work of Christ for our justification. So, so I submit to you, church, that your baptism as a believer is another tool in your tool belt to fight against sin. Because Paul answers those who think that justification by grace encourages sin by saying the very opposite is true. That God's grace in Christ actually frees us from sin, uniting us to Christ, so that we no longer have to sin and points us to baptism because baptism shows this spiritual reality. It's not about what you feel. If you're a Christian, you are united to Christ, and that's a blessing. And you can actually remember that if, if you've been baptized as a believer. And you can remember not only your baptism, but you're reminded of your baptism and this union with Christ every single time somebody else is baptized and you witness it. Think of how helpful seeing our baptism this way is. It makes our baptism so much more than a box to check off or an optional ritual to use when we see fit. Paul uses baptism to call us to fight sin and live for God. Christian, why shouldn't you cheat on a test in school? Why shouldn't you cheat on your taxes? Why shouldn't you cut corners at work? Why shouldn't you cheat in sports? Why shouldn't you cheat on your spouse? Why should you not get drunk today? Why should you not lie or steal or commit immorality or adultery or, or idolatry? Why? One answer is because you have been united to Christ. Just look to your baptism. Remember it and what it symbolizes. You died in Christ and you were raised in Christ. You are no longer a slave to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you. You're under grace and you are to live for God. And you can live for God now. Before you were a slave to sin. Now, having been, been risen in Christ, now having died and been raised in Christ, well, guess what? You're not a slave to sin anymore. It's not your master. Christ is. You're under grace and you're to live for God. You're united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And seeing baptism this way as a tool to fight for, for holiness will encourage you to fight sin and use it that way. And you can because you know that you're united to Christ. And so you are dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is so much more than just this, this thing that we do. We need to see that in baptism. It has vertical significance. The one who has been baptized is someone who's united to Christ. And you get that in baptism, that visual display of union with Christ. 
Another vertical significance of baptism is that baptism is the visible sign of being in the new covenant. Baptism is God's chosen means of marking off those who are in fellowship with him. Those who have been buried with Christ and will be raised like Christ are those who have been baptized. This can be seen the clearest in Colossians 2, 11 through 14. Now, we, we looked at this briefly last Sunday, but, but we're going to look at it in more depth this morning. And here, Paul parallels baptism with circumcision, the sign of the old covenant. So the new sign of the, of the, the new covenant and the old sign of the old covenant is, is paralleled here in Colossians 2, 11 through 14. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So in baptism, we Christians are marked with this sign of the new covenant. It's a sign that does not save the Christian because the Christian who is being baptized is already justified by grace through faith in Christ. In scripture, anywhere there's a reference to water baptism, it's assumed that that person who's been baptized is somebody who is already trusted in Christ. So, so faith precedes that baptism. And, and that's why in, in some passages you're like, it seems like Paul is saying here that baptism equals justification. Well, because there's, there's not a separation there in scripture. The one who has been baptized is someone who is already justified. They're already somebody who was trusting in Christ. And now in their baptism, they are given this picture. They're, they're connected closely in scripture, not because baptism regenerates. Baptism doesn't save a person, but because the one who is baptized has already been regenerated. They've been justified before God. But still baptism, even though it doesn't save, is this sign that God uses to remind us of his new covenant promises. That in Christ, we have been forgiven of all of our trespasses because Christ was nailed to the cross and our sins have been washed away. And just as putting on a ring doesn't make you married, people put on rings for, for various other, ring, other purposes. I mean, there'd be a lot of people married if just putting a ring on somebody's finger made them married that are not married today. Well, the same is true about baptism. Baptism doesn't make you a Christian. Baptism does not regenerate our hearts, but it is God's chosen means of formally or publicly marking us as being in the new covenant. Paul is not teaching in, in Romans 6, 3 through 5, that baptism in water equals justification. And we only have to look back one chapter to Romans 5 to see this, where we read in Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In Romans 5, which comes before Romans 6, Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified, not by baptism, but by faith. And, and so Romans 5 makes it clear, justification is by faith. Faith alone, it, justification is not a work of man or a result of water baptism. It's a work of God. Only God can justify us. And only God will justify sinners who trust in Christ. Only God can de declare us righteous on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a sinless, righteous life on our behalf, and he died a sinner's death in our place on the cross to make atonement for our sin. We didn't do these things. Christ did. 
And so faith connects the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his saving work to a a sinner who trusts in Christ. True and saving faith is a gift from God so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2 makes that clear. And we exercise the gift of faith after the Holy Spirit brings us to life, after he opens our eyes to see the gospel, to see the glories of Jesus, after he, he gives us ears to hear his word. Now, some of us cannot point to an exact moment when, when we were regenerated. And some of us feel a little bit bad about that. Like, there's something missing. I wish I could point to a day or a certain time. And, and I want to assure you, there, there's nothing wrong with that. There, there's, there's many testimonies throughout the, the life of the church. And, and you might even point to a man like Timothy in the Bible and saying, well, he was raised in Christ. He, he seems to, to have been a, a second-generation Christian. His, his grandmother and his mother seemed to be Christians, and they, they shared the truths of God with him, and, and he believed. And then there's others like Paul, formerly known more famously as Saul, and, and he could point to a day. You know, the, the day that I walked on the, on, on the road, Jesus met me and, and I became a Christian. So some of us can't point to a certain day, but, but here's the thing. At some point, we know that, that we actually heard the gospel, not just with our ears, but, but spiritually heard the gospel. Uh, we, we might have grown up in the church and we've heard the things over and over and over again and we could answer all the questions on a test on the gospel. We could write it out, but we did not hear the truths of the gospel in such a way that we believed those truths, that those truths were for us. We did, we did not see Jesus rightly as Lord and Savior to be submitted to and, and to be followed. We did not have hearts of flesh, but hearts of stone. We might have been really good at faking it outwardly, but, but that's the truth. And all of a sudden, it's not that we got smart enough. It's not that we figured out the puzzle because it's not a puzzle. God is clear in his word to his people. But at some moment, we might not even be able to remember it. Some moment, the Holy Spirit opened our eyes and he gave us ears to hear and he took out our heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. That's a work of God, not a work of man. And, and when that happened, Jesus became not only the one that we trust in, but the one that we love, the one that we treasure above all. We didn't make that happen. We didn't say, you know what? Today I'm going to decide to love Jesus more than I love sin. That, that doesn't happen. You don't just choose that. You have to see Jesus rightly, and you cannot see Jesus rightly unless the Holy Spirit gives you eyes to see him. And that's what happens in conversion. So that is all a work of God, not a work of man. Our justification is by grace alone, alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not a work of man. So if we compare the exchange of rings within a marriage ceremony to baptism, which I think it's, it's a helpful comparison, what is it? Well, baptism would be God's way of putting a ring on the believer's finger. But instead of putting a ring on our finger, God commands us to be brought underwater and then to be brought up out of the water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But, but why water? Why would God choose water and not dirt or sand uh, or oil? Oil would be kind of fun. That would be kind of neat, right? There, there's anointing with, with oil in the Bible. Uh, that might be kind of, why, why don't we fill the, the baptismal with oil instead of water? Uh, well, there's significance to that. In Scripture, water is often used to symbolize purification. Since baptism is an immersion in water, and you get this symbolism when you don't just sprinkle water on, on a baby's forehead, but when you take the person all the way under and you bring them all the way up, the symbolism is, is clear. The primary background of this biblical imagery is the Old Testament's water purification rites, which symbolize forgiveness and cleansing from sin. So people would wash as a symbol of their, their being purified, 
And we have that in baptism. In Ezekiel 36, a, a passage that speaks of the new covenant, we read in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. So water is a, is a symbolic means of, of being cleansed. And in Jeremiah 31, 34, we find these new covenant promises. This passage was, was a, a big part of our passage last week in Hebrews 8. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And so water baptism connects to the fulfillment of God's promises in the new covenant, to, to cleanse us of our sins, to forgive us of our sins, which are both promises in the new covenant given to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And recognizing baptism as the sign of being in the new covenant, it, it can provide you, Christian, with encouragement and assurance. Christian, are you in the new covenant? Are all the blessing that God, all the blessings and promises that God has for you in the new covenant yours? Well, how do you know? Certainly, the Holy Spirit testifies to you that you are a child of God. And the fruits of the Spirit working in your life, the process of sanctification, uh, provide evidence to you that you are as well. But here in Scripture, we, we, are, seeing, we are given this, this other source of divine assurance. It's our baptism. You have professed faith in Christ and, have been, and having been baptized, you bear the sign of the new covenant. In baptism, you are marked by God for God. In this way, water baptism reminds you that you belong to God and that all the promises of the new covenant belong to you. And this is why faith must precede baptism. Baptism is the visible sign that God uses to mark who is and who is not in the covenant. It's the sign of the covenant, and the Christian is to bear the sign willingly. Now, though more could be stated, there is one last vertical significance to baptism that, that we must look at before we shift gears next morning to the horizontal significance of baptism. Uh, this is often the, the main issue for people that come into my office and as adults and maybe have been believers for quite some time and decide that they, they need to be baptized as a believer. Maybe they were baptized as an infant and for a long time, for whatever reason, they, they decided not to be baptized as a believer. Again, a Baptist would, would not say that infant baptism is baptism. We would say that's something else, that, that's not baptism because baptism is a, a person who's trusting in Christ for themselves, being baptized, but, but again, we, we know that people, we, we never want to force people. If you're one of those that is struggling with, with baptism, with believer's baptism, we, we want you to continue to struggle and work through this. We, we don't want you to say, you know what, fine, just to fit in. No, no, that, that's not what we want uh, to, to do with these sermons. But, but we do want to challenge you a little bit to think about uh, what, what the scriptures teach about baptism. So, so this is one of the main, if not the main reason, why people often come in and say that they, they need to be baptized as a believer, even after they, they recognize for a long time they were baptized as an infant. Baptism is a demonstration of a believer's obedience to Christ. The, the believer is, is demonstrating that they are obeying Christ with baptism. And we see this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
So Jesus is the one who has all authority. We see that in this passage. We see it throughout the scriptures. You read through the gospels. He's performing miracle after miracle. He's casting out demons. He's healing the blind. He's walking on water. Miracle after miracle is displaying his authority over all things, whether it be physical or spiritual. He has all authority. And Jesus, the one with all authority, has commanded his disciples to make disciples, to go out and proclaim the gospel. This is the Great Commission. And then he commands those who become his disciples through their ministry, their gospel ministry, to be baptized. If you're a Christian, this should be enough of a reason to be baptized as a believer. Your Lord and Savior commands you to be baptized. Baptism is an outward act that demonstrates an inward spiritual reality. And part of that reality, and this is significant, is that you have submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who calls you to be baptized. It was in obedience to the Great Commission that at Pentecost, Peter preached the gospel and afterwards the crowds asked, what should they do in response to the gospel? And Peter told them this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So Peter preached the gospel and they said, now what? Okay, we believe it. Jesus is the Messiah. What should we do, Peter? What should we do? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Peter called the crowd to repent and then be baptized. And that's what happened. And we read this in Acts 2.41. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And as you work through the book of Acts and you look at the New Testament, this is the pattern that continues throughout the scriptures, especially through the book of Acts. The gospel is preached and the people who hear the gospel and believe the gospel respond to it by repenting and being baptized. They confess their faith in Christ and they demonstrate that in an outward act of faith. And that outward act, the, in, in almost every case, the first outward act is being baptized. Baptism is how their private faith went public because that's the process in the Bible. Baptism is how, as one author puts it, faith goes public. Now, I realize that today there are a lot of ways that people can tell other people that they're Christians. We can write an email to family and friends informing them that we have seen our sin for what the Bible says it is, wicked rebellion against a holy God, and that we have repented of our sins and and that we are trusting in Jesus Christ. And honestly, that's one of the things that I did after my conversion. Got saved at 20. I lived a sinful, wicked life. I was the typical college partier guy, and, and people knew that. And so how was I going to communicate to people that, that I w- was now a Christian and I, I wanted them to know that, that, that a real change had been done by God in my heart and that now I was truly trusting in Christ. And so one of the things that I did is I wrote uh, a short email and I had one of the guys that was discipling me read through it and, and make sure that, that I was clear and I was gracious and kind and then I sent it to a bunch of people. And I did that and, and some of you have done that and, and, and that's one way that, that we can inform people of our conversion, that we are Christians. Uh, today, you can post it on Facebook. So you can make it Facebook official. You can say, I am in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's one way that, that some people have, maybe not in the relationship category, but they've, they've announced, hey, I'm a Christian. And they've put it on Facebook. And, and that's a means in, in our modern world. Social media is a means of informing people, letting people publicly know that you're a Christian. Uh, you could, you could rent, uh, rent a plane and write it in the sky or hire somebody, I guess, would probably be the safer way to do it and have them write it in the sky. That would be quite a way to announce that you're a Christian. Uh, we, we could walk down an aisle, which some of us have done. We could sign a card or check a box or raise our hand quietly with everybody else's eyes closed and signal that we're now Christians. 
we could, we could uh, pray a sinner's prayer, which, which many of us have done. Now, all of these are ways that we might declare that we are Christians. A first act of public declaration. But God has given to his people a command on how we are to publicly show our allegiance and commitment to Jesus Christ. A way to show that we are truly Christ's disciples. And that way, and it's been used for 2,000 years, is baptism. Now, we like to be unique, at least many of us. And that's, that's the kind of the trend in modern culture. Setting ourselves apart from everybody else. Look at me. I got this hairstyle. Look at me. I wear these clothes and I can pull it off. Look at me. We like to be trendsetters. And so, so there has been, a, I think, a strong movement towards these unique ways of proclaiming that we are now Christians publicly. And that's not always bad. God uses those as, as opportunities to share the gospel with people and, and, and whatever. But, but here's the thing. In baptism, we're actually not unique. In that we're identifying, we're identifying the biblical way that God has set apart his people to identify themselves publicly. We're going underwater, pretty simple act, and we're coming up out of the water. Actually, it's a very humbling thing, which is one of the reasons why some people wait a little bit longer after their conversion because they're nervous about standing up in front of everybody and, and getting their hair wet, uh, or, or they're working through some of that, that issue of like writing their testimony for the first time because they know that, that if they're here, I'm going to read their testimony. Let me just squash all of that. It's worth it. This is how you publicly declare allegiance to Christ. It's an act of obedience on your part in, baptize, in being baptized. And here's the cool thing. This is how God commands his people to publicly identify. It's through baptism. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It makes you like, like all of the others who have gone before you and who will come after you are identifying in, in baptism with Christ. Now, sometimes adults will, for various reasons, wait for years before they're baptized after they profess faith in Christ. But, but here's the thing, and, and this is difficult for some of us, that's just not the practice we see in Scripture. Sometimes it's the very same day. It's almost like the first thing that happens after somebody professes faith in Christ. They're baptized. And, and I do believe that it's wise for us to, to make sure that someone who's professing faith in Christ is truly a Christian. And so in our post-Christian culture, in a culture where a lot of people have grown up in the church and have been confused about the gospel and, and what it really means to, to lose your life and find it in Christ, it, it makes sense you know, to, to spend some time discipling somebody. Maybe it's a few weeks. And we should see fruit in their life. Like it, that should come quickly. It shouldn't take months or years and definitely not decades before somebody demonstrates fruit that they are truly a Christian. And, and the reality is, no matter what we, we think about it and, and the struggle of it, that, that baptism comes quickly in Scripture after somebody professes faith in Christ. They identify with the crucified and resurrected Christ. Here, here's the cool thing, too. Think about this. God has made it easy. Now what? You know, we, we, we walk the aisles. We come up with all these unique ways to say, hey, me, you know, even though a lot of those ways are kind of weird and, and a little bit cheesy. Nobody look up. Nobody. No, you look over there. Hey, stop looking up over there. There's people that are going to raise their hands saying they're Christians now. I don't want you to see them. Like the, we're, we're publicly identifying, but secretly at the same time, like to, to two people, the sound guy in the back who's watching and the, the, the evangelist up here who's telling, telling you to raise your hand. Maybe whoever else is raising their hand. That's crazy. That's not how God calls his people to identify as Christians. Sure. God's used it, overcome the goof, goofiness in that. Walk down this aisle, touch this rock, do the, the, all these ways that we come up. God's made it easy. You want to identify as a Christian? Then go be baptized. Go under the waters and come back up. And as you do, you'll re be reminded of your union with Christ. 
This beautiful reality of the Christian life. You have been united to Christ. As you do, you will now bear the mark of the new covenant. As you do, you will obey my commands. And that's the way to start as a Christian. Not working through this, and, I, and I've talked to other Christians that have waited and that after being baptized, they're like, I wish I wouldn't have waited 10 years. So silly. Because every time I read those passages, I had already been convinced of believer's baptism, but I was trying to hold on to my infant baptism. And, and every time I'd read those passages, I would get uncomfortable. I would feel like I was disobeying. And now I don't anymore. That's for you. God makes it easy for the Christian, especially the new Christian. And here's the other aspect of this. You need this if you're a new Christian. You need these visible reminders in baptism and the Lord's Supper that the gospel is true. You're growing. You're a new Christian. Your, your faith is immature. And so God says, here, I'm going to do something. I'm going I'm to give you something. Now, you're not saved by it. You're not justified by going onto the waters and coming back up. But you're given a picture of your justification that you have been washed clean of your sin. And so for this reason, if we, if we see baptism this way, and, 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 and if we're a Baptist church, which we are, well, well, we do in a sense practice a form of infant baptism. That is, we believe that spiritual babies, not physical babies, but spiritual babies, new Christians should be baptized because it's an act of their obedience to Christ. Uh, last week, question number six uh, at least the kids' version of the catechism questions, which are the ones that we memorize as a family, um, was how do you glorify God? And the answer is you glorify God by obeying his commands and his law. We glorify God by obeying, we glorify God by loving him and obeying his commands and law. Thankfully, my kids aren't here to, to hear me mess it up because we've been practicing it all week. Uh, how do you glorify God? By loving him and obeying his commands and law. And I tell them this all the time. I connect obedience and love all the time. Sons, you, there's nothing that you have that you can give me that I need. There's nothing. Every, like their piggy bank is, is, is in the grand scheme of things meaningless. They couldn't buy one of our, our weekly orders of groceries with what's in their piggy bank. I need nothing from them as far as surviving and existing. But I do want something from them. I want their love. And one of the ways that a child demonstrates their love for a parent, and we know this, we know this parents, is by obeying our commands, our instructions, our rules, whatever you want to call them. And so I, I tell them all the time, you, you, want to, you want to show your love for me? Stop hitting your brother. I, I will know you love me because I know right now you really want to hit your brother. Like that's, that's everything in you right now. The sinful side of you is saying, I want to punch him in the face. But do you love me? I've told you not to hit your brother. Then don't do it. And when you don't hit your brother, you're obeying my commands, which, because you're obeying them out of love, you're demonstrating your love in a real practical way. I've told them oftentimes, when you disrespect your mother, you're disobeying her, you're disrespecting her, is not demonstrating your love for her. And sometimes you're like, why? I, I can disrespect mom. I still love her. In my heart, there's all these gushy feelings, even as I disrespect her. No, 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 that's not, that's not the reality. You love your mom by obeying her commands, her laws, her instructions, our family rules. And here in baptism, God has said, here, here, here's a way that you can show your love for me. Identify with my son. You want to obey? Be baptized. It's the first step in demonstrating that you have submitted to Christ and you love Jesus. And he's made it easy. Be baptized. In closing, scripture teaches us that, that baptism is more than just this thing, this weird, odd ritual that we do. Baptism has vertical significance. It communicates to us important truths about our relationship with God. Baptism is this visual of our union with Christ. We, we don't always feel it. 
We don't, we don't always remember it's there, but baptism says, no, 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 you're united to Christ. You have died in Christ, you were buried in Christ, and you have been raised in Christ. It's also a visible sign of, of being in the new covenant. How do we know who's in the new covenant? Yes, I know that, that they're, they're false converts. I get that. But for the most part, when we're careful as far as making sure that the person understands the gospel and we, we see fruits uh, of, of them being a Christian, well, we, we know who's in the new covenant because God has said it's those who've been baptized. And not only that, but, but baptism serves to demonstrate our own obedience to Christ. We have submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's demonstrated in our baptism. Well, next Sunday, we will turn our attention to the horizontal significance of baptism, what it communicates to us about our relationship with God's people, the church. Uh, but I, I hope that if, if you're one of those wrestling with these things, continue to wrestle. Again, the, these sermons are not coming from a defensive place or an argument place. We're a Baptist church. You're in a Baptist church. I'm a Baptist pastor. Uh, I, I don't have any feeling of, of need to, to force or, or try to, to angrily convince you to, to be a Baptist. Um, I love you. And, and I believe that if we get baptism wrong, we're missing out. Again, I don't believe that if you're not baptized as a believer, that you're not a Christian. But I do believe you're missing out on something important that God has for you, a blessing and a benefit. Uh, so with that, let's pray. Lord, I, I ask that you would bless our, our understanding, that we would see not more but not less of what baptism is, is meant to be for your people, for us as individual Christians that we would enjoy all the richness of the, the symbolism of baptism as it reveals to us that we have truly, miraculously, mysteriously, by your grace, been united to your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is in this union, this communion that we have with him, that, that we receive every blessing and benefit of the new covenant. And you've given us baptism to remind us and to show us this union. You have marked us in baptism with the sign of the new covenant. It's another assurance, an encouragement of, of faith. We, we have the mark. We bear the mark. You have put the ring on our finger. And that is, is evidenced in our baptism. And not only that, but you have given us a, a real practical step to take as believers to demonstrate our obedience to Christ. And that is by being baptized. May those of us who have been baptized as believers enjoy and be reminded and, and excited about our own baptism and, and the baptism of those who, who profess faith in Christ. And, and may those still wrestling and thinking through these things and, and those who uh, are children maybe and, and thinking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, may, may they benefit from, from your word and, and this sermon on baptism. And again, please, Father, overcome my deficiencies and bless your people with your truths. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.